particular welcome if you are a visitor here. Now we're starting, I mean, it's great to have the young people leading us today, wasn't it? Um, Connie, Connie's prayers, yes, let's give them a, a clap. <laughs> Connie's prayers, the drama, the musicians, everything, fantastic. Now we're starting a series looking at the book of Acts and I'm going low tech today, so I'm using a good old flip chart. So the book of Acts, there you are. I don't know if you can see that on Zoom, but that, it, all it says is the book of Acts and a picture of a book. Although the book I'm showing there is really the whole book, the whole book of the Bible. And um, we're going to be working through Acts this term. We're not doing a sort of verse-by-verse verse thing. We're looking at some themes, ten themes. Ten weeks, ten themes. And today's a bit of an introduction, and we're going to be focusing particularly on the first two chapters of Acts. And I really hope that you're going to throw yourself into this, that if you're not part of a home group, you'll go along to one, uh, and perhaps even more importantly, that you'll actually read Acts for yourself. That is the most important thing we can do, is actually engage with God's Word ourselves. Now, the book of Acts. So, uh, I think you all know that the Bible is divided into two main sections, isn't it? We have um, what we often call the, the Old Testament, which, is, which was written before Jesus' time. And then we have the New Testament, which was, uh, tells us about Jesus and about the early church and was written in the years soon after Jesus lived and died and rose again. And I think you also know that at the start of the New Testament, there are four different accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we call Gospels. And one of those gospel writers wrote a second volume, and it's Luke. And Luke writes a second volume which tells us about what happens after Jesus had risen and gone back to heaven, and that's called the book of Acts. So Luke, in a sense, has two parts to it, and it's a bit odd that in our Bibles they're separated by John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, but they're written to be read together. And we see that, actually, in, a, in some of the words that we will read from Acts chapter 1 in a minute. But before we dip into that, just shout out to me. I like a bit of participation. Just shout out to me um, just a word or two. What's Acts all about? What comes into your mind when you think about the book of Acts? Those of you who've been around in church for a while, or even if you haven't, go. Sorry. Early church. Thank you. Someone else? Early church, new start. Thank you. My handwriting is very bad, but I will do my best. New start. Go on. More. Pentecost. Sorry? Pentecost. Pentecost. More about that in a moment. The coming of the Holy Spirit. New coming. Sorry? New coming. New coming. Yes. Who's coming? Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, new start, new coming. Anyone else? Who is, who is doing the acting in... Sorry? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Who is doing the acting in Acts? Disciples. The disciples. Okay, so it's traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles, the disciples. But is that a, is that a good title? It, the, the title's not original, by the way. The title was made up afterwards, so you're allowed to say it's not a good title. Who else is acting in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit. I'm running out of space. So we've got the apostles who are doing the acting. We've got the Holy Spirit. Is it just the Holy Spirit? Oh, you can think about that. Uh, Jesus, thank you. 
So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In my former book, Theophilus, he's referring back to the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The Gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and to teach. So the implication is the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and to teach through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles and the early church. That's what Acts is about. Well, we could carry on. Sorry if I didn't hear your voice, but um, hopefully there are some other words. Hopefully you will feel inspired as we read this book together over the coming weeks. Now, two things I want to say about the book of Acts. Those verses I read um, make it clear that Luke is looking back. He's looking back to the gospel he had written but he's actually looking further back than that because, as, we, as you've, you will see if you read Acts chapters 1 and 2, there's lots of references to the Old Testament. I refer to the Old Testament. And for what Luke wants us to grasp is that Acts is not just a story about the early church. Acts is part of a much bigger story. The interesting thing about the Bible is it's, I'm sure you know, it's got 66 separate books in it by 40-odd uh, different writers, and yet somehow, uh, written over a period of hundreds of years in different languages, and yet somehow, it's all one story. And when I say story, I don't mean something that's sort of a fairy tale. I mean, it's a story of God's people and God's plan. God's plan to redeem and to save his people. God's plan to make us more like Jesus. So, Acts is a story, but it's not just a little story. And you might think, well, this is, this is a rather trivial thing to say, but I think it's important when we go through Acts to look out for the signs that this is part of God's big story. This is part of all God is doing and has been revealing. Let me just remind you of that story. So back in the Old Testament, right near the Old Testament in Genesis, God calls a particular person called Abraham. So we have a person called Abraham, and God says, what does God say to Abraham? He says, I'm calling you, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your descendants, and I'm going to bless all nations through you. You're going to be a means by which my light is communicated to the nations. Now, Abraham um, had children. Um, they didn't necessarily behave the way God wanted. Um, not all of them, anyway, not all his descendants. But he, uh, through his, eventually they, become, they did become a large people, but they ended up in Egypt, and they ended up in slavery, in captivity. And God then called another person to be his particular messenger to his people, who was Moses, right. I don't know. How do I draw Moses? He's got a couple of um, tablets of commandments because God gave Moses the covenant, didn't he? He said, here are some rules to live by. Here are some ways of life which if you live by that, you, you will live a good life. You will find out how life is truly to be lived. And I will be my, your God and you will be my people. And what did the people do? They didn't really fail. They failed to live up to these, this covenant, didn't they? A little bit later, when things were not going well, the people said, actually, um, although, although you said we, you, we, you wanted us to be your special people, we'd actually like to be the people around about us, and we'd like to have a king. And God said, okay, well, I'm not actually very keen on the concept of kings, because I should be your king, but I'll give you a king. 
And uh, the king, the Israel's kings were supposed to be people who represented God, who showed them something of what God was like. And yet, mainly the kings we read about in the Bible failed to live up to that. Scroll forward. Eventually, we come to the New Testament and we come to Jesus. And who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the perfect Israelite. He's the perfect son of Abraham who shows us what a true Jew should be like, who shows us what a true, a true child of God should be like, who fulfilled all the promises and purposes that God had for Abraham and his descendants, but which they failed to live up to. Jesus is the one who, who fulfilled the law and in whom the commandments of the law were complete. Jesus was the true king who shows us what a, a king should really be like, a king who's also a servant. And I could say more, he's the true prophet. Jesus died on a cross, recognizing that we ourselves cannot do, cannot fulfill the covenant ways of God, but he's done that for us. And we stand this side of the cross in part of God's, whoops, that's supposed to be a church, not very good, part of God's great story, and, this is, and we're, in the, we're in the period of Acts. After the cross, but the period of the church. And Acts is telling us, is introducing to us what the church is and what it's supposed to be like. And God's great story is continuing. And one day, as we read in the New Testament, well, one day, um, heaven is going to come to earth and we're going to be caught up with God forever. And this is God's great big story. And Acts is part of that. So as we go week by week and we, and we look at particular passages, remember, think to yourself, how does this fit in and how do I fit in to God's great salvation story? And in particular, what's the significance of this event? Because time and time and again in Acts, through the, through the stories and through the speeches, <clears throat> the, the significance of this event is emphasized again and again and particularly not just that Jesus died but that he rose again and that proves that this story is true and that takes me to my second point because as I, I was I was reading uh, those early verses in Acts chapter 1 uh, they remind us of words that Luke wrote at the start of his gospel um, let me read them to you Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. That's how Luke introduces his gospel, and he picks up that theme in Acts. He is, thank you, he is writing for us a reliable, orderly, factual account. He's spoken to eyewitnesses, and in Acts, one of the interesting things you'll notice in Acts as we go through it, is everything, every so often, um, Luke switches from talking about he and they doing things to talking about we doing things. In Acts, Luke becomes part of the story. Luke was there. He hadn't been there when Jesus, uh, when Jesus was um, alive on earth, but now he was part of the story, and he clearly knew the key characters. So Acts is not just a big story, but it is a, a true story. It's a reliable story. 
And one of the interesting things about um, Acts is it contains a lot of historical references. It contains a lot of references to, to um, particular Roman officials and governors and so on and things that were happening. <clears throat> and so it's possible actually to cross-check them. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, Luke records things that can't be cross-checked. And for a long time, there, there's an example I particularly like in Acts chapter 17. Um, the Apostle Paul is in Thessalonica in northern Greece. And Luke says that he got into trouble there and there were some city officials. And Luke uses a particular word, particular word for the city officials in Thessalonica. He calls them politarches. And, and lots of... Um, theologians said, oh well, there's no such thing as a politarche, there's no evidence of it anywhere in ancient texts. Luke was clearly just being very creative. It just shows that a lot of stuff in Acts is, isn't really true. Um, it's, just, it's, just, it's just all rather poetic. And then a few years ago, um, they were doing some ex excavations in Thessalonica, and guess what? They found the remains of an archway, and over the top of the archway was an inscription, and the inscription uses the word politarches. And the even better news is it's in the British Museum. I'm not sure it should be in the British Museum, but it is in the British Museum, and you, should, and you can go and see it. And it's just one of the evidence that the, the account we have in the Book of Acts is a reliable account. It doesn't prove it's true. It's very hard to prove anything that was written, you know, 2,000 years ago, but it is a reliable story. It's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not supposed to be poetry. I mean, it has its poetic aspects. It's supposed to be a story of things that actually happened and that not, not only it is a reliable story, but it is pointing consistently towards a God who is also reliable, a God who is faithful, a God who is trustworthy, a God who is always at work, despite the difficult things that go on. And in Acts, we will come across persecution. We'll be thinking about that in a couple of weeks' time. And yet, time and again, through the book of Acts, you get these little summary statements, which are along the, uh, which are along the lines of, nevertheless, the church continued to grow and flourish. And you get these like a drumbeat over and over again through the book of Acts. Nevertheless, despite these actions, God was still at work. Now, I was trying to think, how do I illustrate reliable? Well, here's my attempt to illustrate reliable. So there's a man um, at the top of a cliff, and there's a man dangling down the cliff, and he's got a rope, and I'm terrible at art. <laughs> there you are. I'll turn that over quickly. But God is a reliable God, and this is a reliable story that we're reading. Right, let us at last get into the words themselves. And I'm not going to go, you'll be pleased to know, because time is ticking by, I'm not going to go verse by verse through Acts chapters 1 and 2. I just want to pick out some incidents, but I want you to think, as I'm picking these out, and as you're thinking about them in your home groups, and as you're reading the passage, hopefully yourself during the week, how do I see that God is a great big God and this story is a big story that, is, that started a long time back and is going forward to, into eternity? And how is Luke signaling that to me as I read Acts? And how do I see the, the, the reliability not only of the account but of the God who stands behind it? How do I see God's faithfulness on display? And, and in particular in the light of those two things, if this is a big grand story that covers the whole of history and if it's true, then what are the implications for me? See, the implications for the early church were huge. 
People completely changed their way of life. They were completely transformed because this story is true and it's a great, big, significant story. And we're either sitting here in church this morning ready to engage with this and be changed and transformed by it or else, well, we might as well be sitting in the park having a picnic. We're here to study it because we believe it can transform us as we read it. We believe that the Holy Spirit is at work through Scripture as he has always been through the great story of Scripture and that he wants to change and transform us. Right, let us, let's dip in to... Um, Acts chapter 1 and 2. So the, so the first section, which I guess goes from, um, I guess it's about the first uh, f- 14 verses or so. Acts chapter 1, 1 to 14. Jesus taken up. And it's an interesting phrase there. It doesn't, the, the, the Acts doesn't say Jesus went up. Jesus, it, he says Jesus was taken up. It's, uh, it's what... Um, Scholars sometimes call it a divine passive. God is not mentioned, and yet it's God who's pulling up. And we, and we, and we encounter that, that manner of speaking often in the Bible. Um, Jewish writers are often very respectful about God. They often avoided using his name too often. So they, they put it in the passive. Jesus was taken up. It doesn't say God took him up, but that's what's being implied. God took Jesus up. God is at work here. God raised Jesus and sat him at his right hand in the place that is above every place. And let me just point out a few things in these first verses in Acts chapter 1. So I've talked about, um, in verse 3, after suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs. Again, Luke wants to show that this is a reliable account. People actually saw it, and Jesus proved to them. He spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, "'Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised.'" which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see there the reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father promised the Holy Spirit. I, Jesus, spoke about them, and then the Spirit is going to come. And the disciples, well, the disciples were a bit fixated on Israel. So Jesus has talked about the kingdom of God, and they said, well, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And the answer, Jesus' answer, which really comes in verse 8, is that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? What's the Holy Spirit going to empower you to do? Well, he's not going to empower you to sit here in your cozy little place here in Jerusalem. He's going to push you out to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, I don't know if you at at school, you learned the difference between... um, Centrifugal force and centripetal force. Did you do that? No. Okay. It's physics. Okay. So a centripetal force is something that pulls you in, and a centrifugal force is something that pushes you out. I think I've got that the right way around. Anyway, the interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is both of those things. The Holy Spirit is drawing all people into God's kingdom. There are no barriers anymore. The disciples needed to know it wasn't about restoring anything to Israel. The disciples needed to know that this was about the promise God had originally given to Abraham, that Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all the earth. It's going back right to the start of God's salvation story and saying, well, let's, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to get this right now. We're going to proclaim the gospel to everybody, and we're going to draw everybody in. But in order to draw everybody in, where do we need to go? We need to go out. 
And we need to learn that as a church, don't we, in 2021 in Haywards Heath. We can't expect everyone just to come in. We sometimes need to go out. That's the people might come in, whoever they are. So it's a great, um, it's a great challenge and it's a great encouragement too that nobody is outside God's plan for them but that we the church need to be more ambitious sometimes in taking the gospel out. So we see, um, we get the account of the, the ascension and then, um, time is short, so moving on, we get an account of um, a 12th apostle being appointed because Judas, well, um, poor old Judas, I say poor old Judas, but you have to feel, you have to feel some regret on his behalf. Uh, Judas had betrayed Jesus. Um, we get a, uh, an account of um, what had happened to him that involving his intestines spilling out, which uh, we, won't, we won't dwell on. But uh, so Judas had gone um, and his remains were left in the field of blood. And, and, and the disciples said, well, we need, we need to have a 12th apostle. 12 was very symbolic for them because Israel had had 12 tribes. And in a sense, I think they, they felt that it, symbolically they needed to have a, a, a 12th apostle. So there's, there's an account of them appointing uh, a 12th apostle called Matthias. Interestingly, he's never mentioned again in Acts. Indeed, none of the apostles are ever mentioned again in Acts other than Peter and James um, and uh, John. I think those are the only three. So we get a list of them here. But actually, to call it the Acts of the Apostles is interesting because most of them, um, Acts of the Apostles, it's, it's not really about them. It's about God. So um, that takes us to the end of chapter 1. Matthias. Matthias is appointed, but then we might say forgotten. No doubt he did important things. So then we get into Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is where it gets really exciting because in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes. And um, I guess we could say the, ver- the first four verses. The Spirit comes. And the Spirit comes in a dramatic way. When the day of Pentecost, which, w- which was a Jewish harvest festival, 50 days after Passover... Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This is another theme, actually, in Acts, and I say this in the context of our prayer meeting this evening. The church met together, and it met together to pray. We see it back in chapter 1, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, talking about the 12 apostles, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The women were evidently not silent. The women were praying in these prayer meetings. And another feature of Acts is every so often when something significant happens, what is linked to that? The church had gathered together to pray. I really hope you'll join with us this evening at seven o'clock as we gather together to pray and as we come expectant that God is going to speak and work. But on the day of Pentecost, they were together in one place and suddenly... The sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and come to rest, came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now go back to the Old Testament again, going back to God's big salvation story. God... Um, 
when, when God was traveling with his people in the Old Testament, how did he evidence his, his presence with them? How did he show them that he was there and the way to go? Two things. A fire, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So God led them through the wilderness with cloud and with fire. What do we read in the early church? What happened when Jesus went up to heaven? A cloud hid him from his sight, from their sight. What, what, what are we being told here? What's Luke, who's, who's, who's very interested in Old Testament um, echoes, he's saying he went up to be with God. He went into the very presence of God. And, and, and I can't draw God, and we can't imagine God, but in the Old Testament, there was a cloud. And then on the day of Pentecost, when God, so to speak, comes down, in what form did God come down so that people knew that this was actually God? He came with tongues of fire that hung over the people's heads. An extraordinary occurrence. And, and a reminder, I think, which we'll see as we go through Acts, that God, is, God, is, God the Holy Spirit is not to be placed in a box. He's not to be told what he can and can't do. He's not to be told um, you know, that the Holy Spirit must do this or must not do that. The Holy Spirit is, is God and is free. And the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power. And, the Holy, and, and, as, and as a result, um, remarkable things happening. They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. I said it was a, it was a harvest festival. Lots of people had come from, from all over the place. And when they heard this sound and all this commotion, they came together in bewilderment because each of them who'd come from all over the place and had different native tongues heard their own uh, languages being spoken. And they were amazed, and they said, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? And Galileans was almost a term of abuse. They're, the, they're those sort of rather simple folk from up country. And yet they're speaking our languages, all of our languages. And we get a list of different places and languages. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What, what's that echoing from the Old Testament? What went wrong right near the start? People started speaking different languages. And why did they start speaking different languages? Because they'd said, uh, we want to build ourselves a tower to get ourselves to God. It happened at a place called Babel. And here, in a sense, is the reversal of Babel. God has come down to us. We can't build our way to God. What, an astu- what a stupid thing to think. But God has come down to us, and he's enabled the gospel, the good news, to be spoken in every, in all these confused tongues, to be able to hear it. So the languages were no longer a barrier, no longer a way of keeping us apart from God, but drawing us to him. Wonderful. Well, Peter speaks then. Um, Peter gets up. And and here's another example that the Holy Spirit's at work. Because Peter, what what happened in, in the Gospels when Peter speaks? What are you expecting? Often something not very wise. Often, often his foot is about to go into his mouth. Uh, he, he's, he's a nice guy, don't get me wrong. He's super committed to Jesus. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't describe him as, um, I don't know, Mr. Articulate or Mr. Wise or anything like that. And yet, the Holy Spirit's come upon him and he gets up, um, uh, Acts 2 verse 14, and he gives this extraordinary sermon with all kinds of Old Testament references. Uh, and, and sadly, I haven't got time to, to go into it all this morning, but um, he, he preaches there from, well, it's clearly only a summary of his sermon, um, from verses 14 through to verse uh, 36. Peter speaks, and that in itself 
is a remarkable thing. I ju I'll just highlight one thing about what Peter says. Because his speech, it's about the Holy Spirit, but it, but it is above all about Jesus. Fellow Israelites, this is verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Deliberate plan, is that ringing bells? This is something that needed to happen. God made this happen. It didn't mean that Judas and, and Pilate and so on weren't responsible. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. It was all part of God's big story, God's deliberate plan and knowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Impossible? You see, that wouldn't have been part of the story. That wouldn't have been part of God's big plan if he'd stayed dead. It's impossible for that to happen because God had a bigger purpose. A bigger story was going on. And God is at work. And God was at work in this man, Jesus Christ, who um, Peter goes on later in the talk to, to talk about how he was raised to the right hand of God. So, Peter's speech. But I want to focus really now on the people's response 237 to 41, people respond. Because this is where it gets interesting for us, doesn't it? But, so they'd heard this sermon. Someone's responding out there, um, which is good. It's good to hear life, isn't it? Feel free to, to respond as well. When the people heard this, when the people heard this great sermon from Peter, they were cut to the heart. Something happened. Something happened in the, inside their hearts. And they said to Peter and the other the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, there's a whole sermon, isn't there, in those verses. But Paul, Peter is calling for a response and I'll come back to that in a moment. But just to point out, um, there's, a, there's a transformation going on there of both hearts and minds and that this message, Peter makes clear, is both an inclusive message, but also a message that is going to cause division, in a sense that has an exclusive aspect to it. Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. It's for all those Gentile people out there that you think are not inside the kingdom of God. It's for them too. Because Jesus said the gospel's got to go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's for everybody. And, it, and as we go through Acts, we will see the boundaries being pushed out. And people who were thought were completely outside God's promise being drawn in. And yet, he says in verse 40, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. This means you have to make the decision. 
You have to respond. You have to repent and be baptized. You have to become saved because the gospel message is for everybody, but it requires a response, and that response will divide people between those who do and do not respond. I'm going to come back to that, but just finally, to, to complete things, so the last few verses, chapter verses 42 up to 47, we have the church gathering. I'm not really expecting you to read my writing, it's just... Um, Makes me feel good that I've written something. Um, the church gathers. And, and verse 42, I think, is, is often seen as key, a key description about the, what the church should be like. There's four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They listened to teaching. They immersed themselves. in. They, they didn't have the New Testament, so they were hearing the New Testament from the lips of the apostles. We, we immerse ourselves in the apostles' teaching by reading the New Testament and the Old Testament, which it references. So they devoted themselves, number one, to the apostles' teaching. Number two, to fellowship. Bit of a strange word in our day, but it, it just means sharing together. It means joining, joining together in life, which is, why, which is why we're so keen for people to come back. Um, we're keen to be able to start serving teas and coffees and stuff, and we're doing, gradually taking one step at a time. But it's so keen to, have, keen to have fellowship together. It's great you're joining us on Zoom, and Zoom is a means of fellowship, but we love to be able to, to actually engage um, with people directly, don't we? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship means, by the way, more than just sort of you know, hugging each other and stuff. It means being generous with each other. It means sharing our lives and so on. So apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread. What do we do when we break bread? We remember and commemorate the thing that is at the center of history, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The breaking of bread. And fourthly, to prayer. Oh, that thing we're doing this evening. That thing which the church is supposed to be devoted to too. So that's what the early church was characterized by. They devoted themselves to these things. And then at the end, we get one of these Luke's summary statements. Um, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. The Holy Spirit was at work. The church was responding. People were saved. But I want to come back and ask ourselves, as I often do, the so what question. All very interesting, nice piece of historical analysis, uh, very interesting text, but what's the relevant for us, relevance for us today in 2021 in Haywards Heath? Well, I think that we are being called to become part of this great story, this true story. This massive story that started at the dawn of time and continues into eternity and whose center is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want, I want to come back to Peter's speech, which we're not studying in full, but um, you got some grammar from Fiona last week, didn't you? Verbs and nouns and stuff, whatever they are, you ask her afterwards. And I have mentioned passive, so I'll get granny points for that. But I want to mention another piece of grammar, imperatives. You know what an imperative is? It's a command. Do it. Stop. Start. Think. Act. Those are imperatives. It can come across a little bit, you know, bossy, but, um, you know, said with a smile, they can be a good thing. So anyway, here are some imperatives said with a smile. Uh, verse four, three, three times in Peter's speech, he, he, he gives the command to listen. Verse 14, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. 
36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Like, uh, that translation perhaps skews it slightly. But all these, all these ways, Peter is saying, for goodness sake, listen to this message. Don't just go home and forget all this stuff about God's great plans and purposes. Listen. Okay, so that's my first blob. Listen. <laughs> Said with a smile. Listen up. Sorry? You can read that one. Well done. But, but, listening has to take us to something else, doesn't it? Because it's those words I just read. Um, the second command is to make a choice. Choose. I think uh, imperatives traditionally have an exclamation mark after them, don't they? So there you go. Listen and choose. They, they say at the end of the, the speech of Peter, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's the message for us too. Is it a message that you need to hear today? The challenge to make a choice. Coming to church itself is not the choice. It, it is a choice. It's a choice along the way. It's good that you're here. But the choice that we are being asked to make by Peter and actually consistently in Scripture is to turn to God, to repent, to turn our lives around, to turn around our, our orientation so that we're facing God. To be baptized, baptism is a, well, it's a symbol of many things. It's a symbol of that we're cleansed. It's a symbol of obedience to God. It's a symbol of belonging. It's a symbol of, yes, I'm putting to death my old way of life, and I want to embrace, and I want to be part of this new worshiping community. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And Peter is saying, don't waste time. Don't hesitate the book of Acts, like Jesus, did not intend to leave us the choice of being, putting it off for another day, being passive, being ambivalent. Oh, it sounds quite interesting, but I'll think about it another time. Acts wants the actors to be us. Acts wants us to respond, to act, to do something, to turn to God, and to do that today. And so I ask you, will you make this story, this great, big, reliable salvation story, will you make that your story? Will you choose to belong to Jesus, to make the cross the central theme of your life, that Jesus has died for you? Will you respond as Peter pleaded with the people on the day of Pentecost to respond? And for those of us who have responded, are we ready to go out, to go to the frontiers, to go to the front lines, as we call it? Might be Victoria Park next Saturday. Might be your school classroom tomorrow. And to declare the wonderful news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonders of God in our own tongues, as the people said in Acts 2.11. Let's pause for a moment and let us choose, and I hope you will choose a good response, 
a response of commitment, a response of courage, a response that says, yes, I want to be part of this wonderful story. Let's be still and pray in the quietness. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. I was lost, but Jesus found me, found the sheep who went astray, threw his loving arms around me, drew me back into the way. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over, made by grace for glory meet. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. Lord, we thank you for the wondrous story, the story that is centered on Jesus Christ, but the story which by your grace and by the work of your Holy Spirit we can be part of. And today we want to say yes to you. We want to say yes, we want to be part of this. We want to be part of this great drama. Whether we're people who've never said yes before and today is the first time, or whether we're people who've said yes but we now need to get up and go, Help us to be willing to do that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today, we pray, that we may be people who live for you and play our part in your great story. For we pray it in our Saviour's name. Amen.